The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress and social justice advocate. I am Mandana Dayani, creator and co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am a Voter. So Mandana and I are best friends, and we're constantly sending each other inspiring stories of people who completely blow our minds. And then one day we realized something. Most of them had no intention of becoming heroes. They just knew they had to do something and did it. So we decided to do what we do best, completely geek out on endless hours of research to create our list of the 20 dissenters who blew us away. Based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan, a dissenter is someone who stood up to an injustice or challenged the status quo, someone who fought to build a better way. Each episode, we will meet one of these incredible accidental activists and learn all about their journeys and how each one of us can make a huge difference. This week, we speak with one of our closest friends, actress, comedian, author, and maker of the best chocolate chip cookies in the world, (laughs) Allie Wentworth. Allie has been an activist her whole life, championing many causes for children, developing communities, and women. She's also a global advocate for mental health awareness. As we discussed activism and what it means to become more engaged, Allie immediately came to mind for both of us, not just because of the incredible work she's done for so many causes, but because of what we can all learn from her about how to be an activist at home and with our families, how to raise activists, and how to incorporate activism into all aspects of our lives. Allie is hilarious. She is the coolest and smartest friend we have, the first person we call to vent about politics, and more importantly, how to change them. She is an amazing friend. She always shows up when you need her, and she is truly the person we both want to be when we actually grow up. And now it is our greatest honor to introduce you to the brilliant dissenter, the one and only Allie Wentworth, the mental health champion. Hello, Allie. Hello, my friends. Oh, my God. This is the best thing ever. Um, I'm so excited. This is so fun. It's so fun, especially because the stuff we've been talking about before we put on the (laughs) headphones. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God, listeners. You really missed missed a talk. My gosh. But that's for another day. Why don't we start with your childhood? Yeah. Well, I mean, so— Allie's a really good friend of ours. Even though they were looking down at their papers. And they're like, to make sure they knew who they were talking to. Do you know how much research we've done? Yeah. On uh, me? She's done? All you have to do is ask me a question. I know, but there's a lot there to unpack. (laughs) Yeah, tell my shrink. So I'll tell you that I grew up in Washington, D.C. Okay. So activism to me was about agreeing or disagreeing with whatever the political climate was. So my mother was social secretary of the White House. My stepfather was one of the editors of the London Sunday Times. And my father worked at the Washington Post during Watergate. So every dinner was a discussion about what we thought about Iran-Contra or the Vietnam War. Or So to me, activism was about either being against the war or for the war. That was that like exhausting or cool? Like, was it fun to talk about those things at dinner? I didn't know any different. Oh, I I truly didn't know. I thought this is what everybody did. And everybody, I thought everybody lived in Washington, D.C., which it turns, it's the most (laughs) transient city in the world. Nobody (laughs) is from there. So I was particularly bored by it because I found politics to be 
very corrupt. I mean, unlike they are now, but very corrupt <laughs> and very, um, because I was always hearing kind of the realities of right. what was going on. So I was always hearing my parents say, well, you know, that's not true because this, this, and it could be anything. Well, you know, he's having an affair. Well, you know, this is happening. So I just thought it was theater. And so I couldn't wait to get away from DC. All I wanted to do was, you know, go be Shirley Temple. So when I left DC, I went to boarding school and then I went to NYU and then I went to LA. And so then as an adult, Wait, how did they feel about you wanting to work in entertainment? They, they thought it was like being a prostitute. They, they, <laughs> they didn't understand it at all. They're like, why would you, why would, what? Hollywood, you know, that's was anybody Anybody in your family, your sister, your brother, was anybody funny? No. <laughs> so what did you watch growing up? Who was your favorite comedian? I didn't watch comedians. I, I didn't really know a lot about comedy. We were allowed one hour of television a week. And so I picked Charlie's Angels. Of course you did. I would like, I wanted to be Jacqueline Smith. When we play Charlie's Angels, most people, you just sort of put on some high heels and walk around the house and go, Charlie's Townsend Investigations. I took it for real. And I made my friends go downtown to a real strip club in Southeast Washington. And I walked in wearing my mother's dress and heels and said, I'm from Charlestown Sound Investigation. There's a stripper missing. And they were like, Wait, Wait, how old are you? I'm 12. And oh they called the police. <laughs> what? <laughs> and the police came and I kept saying, I'm a detective. <laughs> so yeah, that's the kind of stuff that went on. The shenanigans that went on in my childhood. And- because of that, did they want to put you in an institution? Did they? <laughs> they? My mother thought I had a very big imagination, which means I was taken to a shrink. Uh-huh. And um, the shrink said, no, she's just got an active imagination. You know, when I wouldn't come out from underneath the dining room table for like three days because I was, <laughs> I've been enslaved in Bulgaria. <laughs> and they were like, Wait, are you serious? Yeah. They were like, get out and eat your dinner. I was like, I can't. I'm enslaved in Bulgaria. <laughs> So it was, it was a little craziness there. So, but that was also my escapism from the fact that, you know, my mother was getting ready for Nixon's 60th birthday party at her house. So, you know, there was, I escaped from all that stuff as yeah. much as I could. And so you thought you would never go back to D.C.? I never thought I'd go back to D.C. And like they say in The Godfather, I tried to get out and they pulled me back in. The next thing I knew, I'm married to George Stephanopoulos. George Stephanopoulos, I can't even say his name. You can't say George <laughs> Stephanopoulos. And I'm knocked up and I'm living like, two blocks from where I grew up. I was supposed to marry Matthew Perry when he came out of rehab. And I'm now I'm married to George Stephanopoulos. How does that happen? I don't know. I, I, I ask myself every night as I'm resting my head on that hairy Greek chest, I go, <laughs> what happened? Was, was it a, a, a setup? We were set up on a blind date. Okay, so who thought that was a good idea? Some crazy lady. Um, <laughs> it was a friend of George's who was at my house. I was I was newly single, which is shocking. And uh, she was at my house. I was having an all-girl party. And I said, who do you date in LA? They're either agents or actors. So right. they're damned either way. Right. I said, who knows a good cosmetic dentist? Anything. And I actually said to the girl, I'm going to set you up with my older brother. You know, my brother's a tall glass of water. He's now the mayor of Mammoth. And she said, oh, I could... I could set you up with George Stephanopoulos. And I went, <laughs> no, thanks. And, you know, she was like, no, no, he's great. I was like, no, he's not. He's gay. He's 40. <laughs> and she said, no, he's just not married. It doesn't mean he's gay. He's he's great. And I was like, all right, maybe. And a few months later, 
Uh, I was coming to New York for work and I thought, I'll call George Stephanopoulos. It'll be a good story. I'll write an article someday, my date with George Stephanopoulos. And I called him up and he said, uh, hi, you know, and I didn't realize he was a serial dater. Okay. Really? Oh, yeah. He oh. dated the Isle of Manhattan before I even got there. <laughs> and he said, great, how about dinner? Which I thought was way too much. So I said, what about coffee? He said, what about lunch? I said, okay, I'll meet you at Barney's because I figured I'd get my keel scrub if it was a total disaster. And I read the New York Times cover to cover because I thought, well, we're just going to talk about politics. Right. Um, I didn't shave my legs. I didn't shower. I had my hair in a scrunchie. I wore a black jacket because whenever I wear a black jacket, I think, well, now I'm smart because <laughs> I'm wearing a black jacket. And I met him at Fred's, which is a restaurant at Barty's, and we both ordered the crab salad, and we were engaged two months later. That's insane. Like a good melon. Oh, my God. Yeah. You guys are one of my favorite couples. 20 ever. years. Ever. Yeah. You, could, you guys are really inspiring. Well. I wish I could bottle it because oh I'd make God. a lot of money. But I know. Yeah. You could set even, me up with someone. And even now, I mean, what's going on right now in the world and politics, it's like he doesn't even have the kind of partner that he can really talk to because I, I I, get overwhelmed and inundated and I won't talk to him about it, which right. I think it's is probably actually good for your marriage, right? Thing. Yes. He likes to come home to a dirty joke and a roasted chicken. <laughs> <laughs> you know? What did you study? What was your major in college? Drama. So when you came out to L.A., you wanted to be an actress or a sketch artist? I wanted to be an actress. I didn't know what that looked like. So, I mean, I just wanted to act. I just wanted to be the enslaved princess from Bulgaria. From Bulgaria. And so I remember I, I auditioned for anything. And there were two things I was up for at the same time. One was in Living Color. And the other was like an after school special about a pregnant teen. So, I mean, it could have gone, either, like, awesome. if I had done the pregnant teen, yeah. it might have been the last thing I ever did because it was drama. But um, it was in Living Color in the Groundlings Theater that when I started doing that, I was like, oh, this is, this is what I want to do. This is my thing. So, in Living Color, that was, I mean. Groundbreaking. It was, yeah. it was so, so groundbreaking. Yeah. I mean, they I would heard never about make it, it later because I'm so much younger than you guys. I yeah, know. you don't know. I don't. You don't know. Well, we'll, it was, we'll show you the tape. Yeah. <laughs> we'll pull it up on YouTube. You were in LA for how long? 13 years. And then I met George and we fell in love. And it was, we didn't even have the discussion of whose career trumps who. It was like, well, you're moving to New York. Of course. <laughs> okay. So, so now you're in New York. Mm -hmm. And well, I, was it two years ago? I saw you on a panel. Mm -hmm. talking about Child Mind Institute, which mm -hmm. I know you're really involved in. And somehow you managed to make that topic funny, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, when did you get involved with them? So I I got involved with them. One of my friends in LA um, ran the philanthropy for CAA. So there was a lot of things that she used to go, you should do this, you should talk to this person. And some things clicked and some didn't. But one thing that I've always been is a big child advocate. And when I was living in DC with George, I went on the board of the Children's Defense Fund because I just couldn't believe there isn't universal health care for all children. It makes yeah. no sense to me. And Marion Wright Edelman. I mean, a lot of times I've seen for myself and for other people, sometimes you become an activist because somebody who's kind of bushwhack the way or somebody that's the leader of a cause is so inspiring to you. Yeah. yeah. And for me, it was Marion Wright Edelman at the Children's Defense Fund and Jeffrey Canada, who started the Children's Harlem Zone, yeah, yeah. that I think are such unbelievable people that just they themselves made me 
get involved. And part of the child advocacy is uh, there's a mental health component. So I'd heard about the Child Mind Institute and I went, I went there. I think I saw a panel or something, was intrigued. And I have a issue with how we are raising this generation of children because as adults, we grew up, not you, Madonna, but me and Deborah, we grew up without social media and vaping and jeweling and all kinds of stuff. I didn't have any of that. Or a cell phone. Or a cell phone. Right. So, so for us, our children and us as parents are guinea pigs. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what to say to my kid about don't use your phone, use your phone, do this, don't that. And I started learning as I went when I would see other people's daughters and how sexualized they were on social media or how boys had the freedom to say whatever racist, homophobic thing they wanted. And I became very passionate about the idea that we need to regulate social media. We need to chart these waters for our kids. So I started doing these panels on the social media and its effect. And I started talking to other doctors and and a woman, Dr. Siegler, who wrote The Big Disconnect, because my feeling was, this is a very dangerous thing. And it is. It's a very it's a dangerous, really dangerous thing. thing. And, yeah, and it's really insidious. I, I see it with other kids. Our suicide rate has doubled. You know, I see the bad effects. I think they're good effects too. Definitely good effects. Social activism is so strong on social media. But um, I worry for children. And then when you when you fold in the mental health aspect, yeah. when you fold in the fact that kids already have pressure and they have OCD and anxiety and all this other stuff, and you mix that with the cocktail of social media, there's there's going to be a lot of depression and there's going to be a lot of suicides and there's a lot of be a lot of things that we as kids didn't have to deal with in such extremes. Mm-hmm. And so it became it's a big thing for me. So now with the child mind, I you know, I go around the country and speak about this panel and I do their spring luncheon which raises money where we, you know, talk about these issues because you know, there's certain areas that the child mind institute does so brilliantly. I can talk about depression, anxiety, and social media. And especially because uh, when I was in my 20s, I had a horrible depression and got myself out of it. And so I'm a big advocate of of antidepressants for that reason. Mm -hmm. But God, if I had had social media, if I at that time was seeing you know, my ex-boyfriend with his new girlfriend and her fake boobies in the Bahamas. And if I were seeing parties I wasn't invited to and I've all this stuff, I mean, I was circling the drain as it was. Yeah, And that's without knowing all the stuff that was going on, you know, without me. FOMO is real. It still is real. We're adults and I have FOMO. No, I, absolutely. I read some statistic, I think when I was doing the research and it said of the 74 and a half million children in the U.S., an estimated 17.1 million have or have had a mental disorder, which is more than the number of children with cancer, diabetes, and AIDS combined. Right. But we, we don't, we don't qualify mental health in the same way we do other diseases. But, you know, we were just kind of talking about this today. I I don't think people understand what it means. I think they, they see the person in a movie who's like schizophrenic and and wielding a knife and trying to stab someone. And they, they think that's someone that has mental health issues. And I don't think people even understand what mental health is and how to get help for it. 
Well, this is what I have to say about that. Yes, I think that mental health is not viewed well in the. I mean, you think of any movie, even Francis. But no one even says what it is. Like, how right. do we? But even I think that's part of the problem. What, the, what this? What mental health even means? But I think that's the problem. So, for instance. Uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation is for Parkinson's, mm-hmm. and it's very clear. These are the symptoms of Parkinson's. You know, yes. he is the face of it. Yep. And what we want to do is cure it, so give us money for research to cure the disease. Done. Yes. When it comes to mental health, there's so many different components right. that you have to kind of break it down. Are you talking about bipolar? Are you talking about schizophrenia? Are you talking about de- seasonal depression? Is yes. it chemical? Is it environmental? Because it's such a complicated, complex area— you can't just say, oh, this is what it is, and this is what the cure is. That is why it's such an ambiguous, difficult, gray world to walk into. And why don't you think more people ask for help? Like, it affects so many people. Stigma. I mean, I do, just the way I am as a person, I don't like to hide things. I put them out. And I feel the same way about mental health. I've written about Zoloft, you know, I'd put all my money in the Zoloft stock. I'm like, you're depressed, get an antidepressant. Doesn't mean you're crazy. It means you need a floor. It means you need help. Could be temporary, could be the rest of your life. And I remember once when I went on Zoloft, Mike Wallace called me. He said, look, I was once in Beirut, covering Beirut, and I had a depression and Zoloft saved my life. He said, I went off of it once and I spiraled again. And he was like, don't go off. Don't go off. And I was like, this is Mike Wallace at 60 Minutes calling me up saying, you know, and I'm not ashamed of it. And I think that's part of it. I think it's shame. It's stigma. You know, if you take drugs, you're crazy. You know, it, it's considered it's, a weakness. Yes. It's like, why don't you just buck up and handle the stress? Like, and I always you know? say to somebody, if you have strep throat, you're going to take antibiotics. Right. If you had a broken arm, you'd put a cast on it. You're going through a hard time. You need something to kind of give you a floor. Why not? I feel that way about epidurals. I don't understand how people don't want one. <laughs> Well, don't get me started. I'd have an epidural in right now doing this podcast if I could. I mean, I don't need to feel that. You know what I mean? I don't, but, you know, but some women, you know, some women like a breech baby coming out of them with no meds. And that's their choice. And by the way, it's your choice with antidepressants. But 100%. I'm not a fan of Tom Cruise telling me not to take them. I think everybody, right. you know, you can voice your own opinion. But for me, I've, I've never shied away from it. And I think that's part of breaking the stigma of mental health. I'm just being open about everything. And and I'm very proud to say I raised a teenager who will say, oh God, I can't do that. I'm, I have anxiety. You know what I mean? I, I That's amazing. brought them up not to be ashamed of it at all. And George even wrote in his book, All Too Human, he wrote about how he had to go on Zoloft when he worked at the White House. Because, you know, when you're deciding whether to go to war with the country, it's very stressful. Oh my. <laughs> it makes you break out. <laughs> So, you know, we've always been very open about that kind of stuff. And I think also we don't know what normal is. Exactly. You know, it's like I think about what you were saying about being a teenager right now with social media and how confusing it must be to be sad all the time and anxious all the time and to assume that you are all alone Mm -hmm. and that you're broken. Yeah. And not be able to say, hey, mom, hi, dad, I need, I, you know, this is how I feel. Right. I mean, and you can equate that with everything right now. I mean, if we all believe in having a society where we're all authentically ourselves, you have to address everything, you know, all of it. 
But that's the thing with Instagram, right? Is everyone is thinner, prettier. Because it's richer, curated. Ex- all of and it. And none of it's real, yeah. right? But it's when you are dealing with any of these issues or even not, right? You look at social media and you're just like, fuck. Right. I should be doing this. I should be doing this. I should be doing this. Why am I not doing this? But if and you understand, hard for if kids. you understand kind of what social media is, and that's part of what I think we need to educate our kids. Like with yes. my daughters, I, I mean, I use humor, but I will show them girls in tiny bikinis with their asses sticking out. And I'll say, do you see this girl? She's got a hole she's trying to fill. And how she's doing it is this, this, and this. Or I'll say, oh my God. Or Elliot will say, the other day, Elliot said, um, my teenage daughter said, "Um, I don't want to go to school. And I go, don't, drop out. Drop a single on Spotify. You know, I'll find, (laughs) you know, I'll find a funny reason. But what I'm saying to her is, it's all bullshit what you're looking at. You know what I mean? And I've I've often said, I wish I could do, have a social media, an Instagram that was real. Like I would, you would see me having diarrhea from food poisoning. And the only <laughs> reason I don't do it, and I would show my stomach that's like hanging over my pants. I know that you would. <laughs> but I don't because I'm married to George Stephanopoulos and I have to respect <laughs> <laughs> And I do, he doesn't need to bombard, be bombarded with, why did you marry her? So, you know, I, I'm, I have to be tasteful, but I educate my kids for them to really believe that social media is about curating. It's about your, it's like what our high school picture used to be. Picking the best one. The best picture. Where you felt the prettiest. Yes, and with your best and- quote. It's your high school photo like every day. But how do you, so how do you parent in this age? Did you limit the, the kids in terms of yes. social media? Yeah. yeah. Like, how so do we do this? Here's the thing. You can't take their phones away. You cannot use it as a punishment. So we have uh, rules about when, when you can have your phone. Okay, what are they? I want to know this. You can't have it during a meal. Okay. And that includes storage. I don't care if, you know, yep. things are breaking down in the White House. Our phones don't go anywhere near our table. So we sit down to breakfast, lunch, dinner. There's no phones. If we're having like a family conference about something, mm-hmm. no phones. Like you can't, they can't be in your hand. The other thing is that there are now apps so that when your children, and Madonna, you've got younger children, when they're older and they have phones, or maybe they have phones now, there's an app now for parents where you can turn off certain features. For example, you can turn off social media. You can turn off texting by your phone. Yeah. And so if they try the old, you know, uh, mom, you got to turn on my music because I need my alarm to wake up. You can go, oh, the alarm's on. I've just turned, you know, they they, you can, they cannot manipulate you, yeah. but you can control when and they're on and off stuff. But I also think we're losing empathy in our children. We're losing eye contact. Yeah. Our kids aren't going to know how to read social cues mm-hmm. because they're looking down. I mean, even walking over here to do this podcast Three people bumped into me because they were looking down. I thought, you're going to get hit by a bus. You know what I mean? Like, we can't all just be looking down. And I think with kids, I go, it's great to have a phone. It's great to, you know, be connected to the world in such a way. But there's also times in the day where you need to look people in the eye. You know, when they're at school, they shouldn't have, you know, they shouldn't be on their phone at school. Mm -hmm. And I just, you do guidelines. Kids should not have their phone in their rooms at night because the blue light keeps them up. Yes. That's a fact. Also, as soon as you put a iPad in front of a child at a restaurant, they're losing their capability to socially interact. What is the correlation between social media and suicide? It's very high. It's very high. Because, okay, think about teenagehood. You always feel like an outsider, like you don't belong. 
that's all being mm-hmm. dictated by your hormones. I yeah. mean, I'm in menopause now and I get weepy for no reason or I feel angry for no reason. And, you know, think of it that way. The hormones are doing things to their frontal lobe, which hasn't developed already. They're not making good decisions. Right. So when a girl who doesn't have a lot of friends goes to a party and tries to be popular and she's told by being popular, she has to hook up with some of the lacrosse players. But one of them has videotaped that on his phone and then he shares it with everybody and then she goes to school the next day and she's slut-shamed and she kills herself. That is a cyclical thing that happens all the time. It's your worst insecurities are not only realized, but spread out to everybody else. I mean, Snapchat is a nightmare. Okay, so you say be talkative with your kids. What does that mean? I'm saying converse with them as much as possible. I talk to them about everything. You know, one of them is easier to talk to than the other. If one of the kids walks in and, and you say, hey, how was your day? And they say, fine. And that they leave it at that. What do you do? I say, did you get married today? <laughs> uh, did you run over an animal? By any, any, I use humor. That's what right. I do. George, my husband, gets more. He will follow them into their room and go like, hey, what's going on? How, you know, he'll push it. I use humor. Yeah. So I'll say, you know, did you cure cancer? Did you drop out today? Let me know if you're going to drop out because I want my tuition back. I use humor and then I try to open the conversation that way. Sometimes I believe that having meals with your kids is important. And a lot of times I will start having a conversation with my husband about something that they can listen to if they want. And a lot of times that way they start to integrate themselves into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean? Well, what is ISIS? What, you know, yeah. and then you start a conversation and you can slowly start to pull things about themselves out. Well, don't, don't you, do you ever feel that with your friends that people think that blah, blah. Yeah. So I think for teenagers that don't want that spotlight on them, there's a way to do it either where you talk about yourself or you talk about, something in the world and somehow try to engage their opinion. You know, there's other ways in, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, And sometimes, you know, when I think my husband was a little skeptical of it at first, I will talk about somebody else. For example, I will say, oh, I was really upset today because, you know, I was was looking on Deborah's Instagram and I don't know why she's always in a bathing suit. I just, she's so smart and funny. I don't get it, you know? And the neon thong and then she starts shaking her ass and <laughs> and Deborah does do that a lot she does to you know baby got back and I just go Deborah, you don't have to you know <laughs> so I'll start talking about it that way mm-hmm. and then maybe one of my daughters will go oh I have I have friends that do that too and I'll go isn't that why do you think that is why 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 would somebody do that what do you think that they're not getting I was so blown away when we were at that panel that you did just about how every kid watches porn and you were saying about that like blew that, my mind and it really freaked me out. You said there was like some study and they couldn't even find a control group for the study because every single child they spoke to had seen porn at one point or another. A lot of times boys will go on Google because now they all have access. It's not the playboys that are hidden in the closet. Yeah. They can Google boobies. I mean, it could be very simple, like right. boobies, and that that'll take you to porn. You know what I mean? It'll start out somewhat antiseptic, but it'll, it all goes to porn. And the bigger issue is our boys 
have such an easy access to porn, and then they start thinking this is how this is sex. Yes, and this is this is what a vagina looks like, and it just okay. And it's it seems obvious, but why is that bad? I think it's important to explain why is that bad. I mean, do you want to see obvious. my vagina, Mandana? Because <laughs> I'll show you what a real one looks like. In porn, the women have been conditioned to look a certain way. They believe that big, hard boobs. And a completely shaved vagina. So you look like you're 12. And so they see everything in a way that is not typical. So then when they see a real vagina, they're like, what's this? Yeah. Right. And also they're seeing a kind of dream version of a woman, like big, big boobs. And and what's more important is that they're watching women reacting to sex Pleasure in a certain way in yeah. a certain way that yeah. that isn't real yeah right. i mean you know uh, i'm sure someone you can sue me but i i not every woman that's having sex with three men <laughs> is having an orgasm that way they're not they're they're performing, they're performing. for money right. for theatrics and so when a boy sees a woman you know having her hair pulled back really hard and entering her from behind and slapping her ass and the woman's going, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A 14-year-old boy goes, oh, that's, that's what women want. Then they go and do it, and it's it's an assault on the girl. You know what I mean? And right. then we're getting into very confused lines about what's okay and what's not okay. Right. So what are parents supposed to do? I think parents of boys, well, yeah. first of all, I think parents of girls need to say, like, you're beautiful. We're all yes. beautiful in different ways, and it's who we are. But it's about boys seeing the girls as a person. Yes. You know, and... Mm-hmm. Um, who do you connect with on an intellectual way? Or who do you connect? What girl makes you laugh so hard? Yeah, Like, right. that's a girl you want to spend time with. And also, uh, it's about talking to boys about what sex really is and what it is for women and how it's about two people coming together. And it's, you know, you you right. emphasize the union of the, of the man and the woman and uh, having feelings and not putting a red ball in her mouth and a bridle and a saddle, you know. That's bad. Sometimes it's fun. <laughs> Sometimes on your 10th anniversary in Phoenix, Arizona and the Comfort Inn, it's fun. But I think for people starting out, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't wear an executioner's mask. So how how do you, how do you stop kids from looking at porn 24-7? You can't stop them. You certainly can't stop them. I mean, they shouldn't be looking at it 24-7. If they look at porn, I would look at the porn with them that one time and go, they're performing. This is what's going, I mean, you know, I'd sit there with them and go, right. like you're in school and just go, right. this is what's going on. You know, and this guy's probably married and has kids at home. Right. He's doing this because he makes money. Right. There's a reason that the porn industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. You could also say like, you know, people use this because in the privacy of their own home, they that's how they pleasure themselves and people pleasure themselves in all kinds of ways. Right. But this is a performance. This is this is not real. I tried to block it on on the computer and it didn't work because it was like, oh, but then you can't you can't watch R-rated movies. You can't watch, can't watch Will and Grace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think to block and say no piques their curiosity. I think it's more about them just knowing what that is. Yeah. This is what porn is. Right. You know what I mean? This is what it is. And you know, listen, I, I I'll never forget my daughter just yelled at my husband because she asked him, had he ever seen porn before? And he was honest. He said, yes, I've seen it. 
And she went into a dialogue about, you know, you just, rem- and now that I'm thinking about it, it's actually very good advice. She said, just remember the next time you look at porn that that young woman in that movie is somebody's daughter. How would you like it if it was your daughter? And she was probably trafficked into this. She doesn't want to do this. She's trying to make enough money to feed her baby. So you demystify what porn is, right? you know, and and you almost make it kind of a sad thing. Yeah, you take its powers away. How did you know all this? Like, how did you figure that? You're you're like the best mom ever. We always talk about this. We always want to be you when we grow up. And where did all this come from? Like your your vision of family and family time and togetherness and family dinners. And, and you went parenting. off to boarding school at nine. Like there is this like it's there's this holiness to the way that you it's guys all treat reactionary. Your family. It's all reactionary. I went away to boarding school. I was I was sent away at thirteen. You know what I mean? I didn't want to go away. I grew up with parents that were very busy that, you know, weren't around as much as I would have liked them to be. And so I parent in a way that I wish I was parented. You know, I wish I had family dinner every night and cozy, cozy. And I wish my parents talked to me about sex, you know, a little bit, something. Because I learned it at school and was not always accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Same. Yeah. So it's about parenting the way I wasn't. For me, it was, I wish I had more of this. I wish I... You know, I wish my parents saw me more, listened to me more. And so I do that with my kids. I wish I could have talked to my parents about stuff that was happening to me when I was a teenager. It was terrifying, you know? Well, you're an incredible, incredible mother. Your girls are incredible. We were talking about how you said you didn't want the girls to think charity meant going to a gala. (laughs) Yes, that's a big that's a big thing for me. And when Elliot, my eldest, was five years old, she wanted to have a lemonade stand. We were living in D.C. And we said, oh, that's so cute. Lemonade stand. Great. We made the sign. I made the lemonade with fresh lemons. And, you know, brought it all outside with the table. And George came home from work and he said, that's so cute. Lemonade stand. He goes, Elliot, what charity are you giving the money to? And she, you know, she was in her cute little smock dress and she looked at him and she goes, what? And George said, well, you're doing a lemonade stand. So first you have to pay back the money that was used to make the lemonade. So mommy bought lemons and sugar. So you have to pay her, pay the house. House gets a cut. (laughs) And he said, and then the rest of it goes to charity because you don't need money. You know, you have your needs met. So you have to give it to a charity. She had a temper tantrum, ran upstairs, slammed the door, then came down a few minutes later and was like, why do I have to give all my money to charity? And George goes, because that's what we do. You know, we're, our, our needs are met. So you have to give your money to charity. And she goes, that's fine, daddy. I already have a charity I'm giving money to. And he goes, what charity? And she goes, Sephora, <laughs> which is a makeup chain. And so we were like, from that day on, we were like, okay, we have our work cut out for us. And so oh God, we decided that for us, our kids had to get their hands dirty. So I started a charity in D.C., Based on Baby Buggy, which was Uh Jessica Seinfeld's recycling baby gear and baby clothes. I, there wasn't one in DC. So I started Baby Love in DC because they didn't at the time wanted to nationalize. So, and so I had a U-Haul truck and I drove around DC collecting stuff with my kids. Then we would drive to Southeast and I would hand out, you know, washed goods and recycled gear with Harper and Elliot. I mean, and Harper was in a, a car seat. 
you know, she didn't walk it. And wow. I, and I, from that age on, I said, wow. this is what charity is. It's not going to a gala, you know? And, you know, when the, after the hurricane in Puerto Rico, I took them down to Puerto Rico. We handed out med- medical supplies and baby formula. And so for me, I didn't want my daughters to think that to help somebody out meant, you know, you write a check or you put on a pretty dress or, you know, I, I said, this is what charity is. And so I, it's been hands-on ever since. And so uh, Elliot heard this man named Deo speak at her school who survived the genocide in Rwanda, lived in the woods for a year, made his way to JFK with no money, not a stitch of money, lived in Central Park for six months, finally got a job delivering groceries for $5 a day and met this incredible couple who took him in. Long story short, he went to Columbia and then went to Harvard Medical School and graduated summa cum laude, straight A's. Oh my God. And whereas he could be, you know, a highfalutin doctor now, he has gone back to Burundi and he has started the Village Health Works, which is uh, a clinic and they're building a hospital because there's no hospitals in Burundi and teaching uh, all these young students to be doctors. And, and it's an incredible thing. And so Elliot heard him speak and came home and said, oh my God, this man is incredible and and he's gone back to Burundi and done all these things. I want to go. Now, it was hard for me to say, I'll go with you because I had to look where Burundi was <laughs> on the map and it was not near St. Bart's. So I was like, <laughs> it's right in the center of Africa. And I thought, we're going. You know, my daughter's interested. Like, we're going. And, you know, it was not an easy trip. It took us 72 hours to get there. And a five-hour drive on a non-road. You know, you're just going yeah. through rocks. And and we went to this Village Health Works for two weeks, and I got to really see my daughter in action. I was scared. I, I didn't know where I was. There's all kinds of kind of rogue militia groups down. You know, I, I just yeah. didn't know. Um, and the, the, the genocide is still a palpable thing down there. And I was scared. I was with my child. You yeah. know, I wanted to protect her. And she was just in it. She was playing with those kids and she was trying to understand water irrigation. And, you know, we took her to some women's clinics in Rwanda. I mean, there were, I almost blacked out uh, <sighs> just to see women hemorrhaging on the floors and there's, there's no medicine and there's, you can't, there's no antiseptic. And, you know, and Elliot was just eyes big, taking it all in. And after two weeks, I was emotionally really drained. Like I, I had to get out. And she was she was invigorated by you know she immediately came back and it was her 16th birthday and we said what do you want to do for your birthday you want to have a big party like what? and she said no i want everyone to donate to the village health works so she raised $10,000 for her birthday and sent it oh my it. god and she's so, so proud of this too it's, and she it's wants to go so back amazing. this summer yeah. you know like she's she lo- i mean she talks about it and i think that's about having my kids see it, feel it, be in it rather than read about it. Read about it. I love that you're raising these little activists that are just incredible. One of them the is world. the other one. I don't know if she might not change the world. She might, but she might come up with an anti-wrinkle cream that'll save us all. So that'll be good too. <laughs> I don't know. I had an amazing conversation with Harper about activism. She really cares. And yeah. It's, like really it's in their blood. Yeah. It's really in their blood. And I, and I have to say too, George, it's always, it's, been the way he is since, you know, his father's a priest. I mean, he he was brought up to give back always, Charity. always, always. And he does in a huge way now. And I have to say, George does it in a way that he doesn't talk about it. Right. I mean, 
he himself is funding all these homeless shelters in Kansas. You know, he doesn't have his name on stuff. He's very quiet about it. And it's just, we don't see it any other way. You know what I mean? Like you just, that's how our, we've wired our brains and that's how we've wired our kids' brains. You give back, you give back always. Like Elliot, it's so funny. The other day, Elliot went Saturday morning to feed the homeless on her own. I didn't even know she was doing it. What? Yeah. She just went with a friend to feed the homeless. Where? Where did she go? I don't even know. I wasn't around this weekend, so I don't know where she went. Well, I'm, <laughs> I feel like a doctor of bullshit, but I think that there's a little bit of truth sprinkled into some of the stuff I said. <laughs> oh my God. I'm going to call you that from the now on. I'm the doctor of bullshit. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Bullshit. You're on the line. By the way, that should be your podcast. That should. Dr. Bullshit. Yes. That should be the name of it. It's really good. It's really it's funny. So funny though. But that's why <laughs> that's why I wrote my book. Go ask Allie. Go ask Allie. Because it was like people always asking me their advice and I go, I'll give it to you, but it, this is based on nothing. It, or I should call it pulled out of my ass. Hi, it's pulled out of my ass. How can I help you? <laughs> okay. We've got we've got two ideas for a name of a podcast. Okay, for you. good. Great. We'll keep we'll keep working on it. Thank over you. Dinner. Thank you for having me. Oh God. It's been it's, it's been an eight-hour stretch of a been, podcast, but we got through it. And we're going to see you for dinner in two hours. I know. <laughs> Thank you, Allie. You're welcome. Allie, we love you. Love you, too. This is Dr. Bullshit signing off. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in. And please join us next week as we speak with the brilliant and hilarious Jamila Jamil, the shame assassin. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell. <laughs>